I'm just going to read uh, a bit from God's Word. Said we're going to look at 1 John. Now, the reason we're looking at 1 John, well, one of the reasons why is just a couple of things. Just by the way, just to say to everybody who's going on the trip, I know Jonathan shared last Sunday night about the bombs flying over and all that. Just to point out, he was miles away from it when it happened, and it is in the Palestinian areas where the crazy ministers from Stirling sometimes take their, their folk. But we will not be getting any bombs flying at us, so we're okay there. But Jonathan shared a little bit about some things he'd heard at different conferences. At. It got me thinking, and so we're going to look at First John, and I'm going to begin reading from verse 1. So it's First John uh, chapter 1 and from verse 1. And we read that that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim so that what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Let's just come and pray. Father, we just want to thank you for every way in which you provide for us in life. We want to thank you for the opportunities we bring our offering that we have to give thanks to you. But Lord, we know that your real desire is that we thank you by the way we live our lives. And Lord, we pray that as we read your word, that we will seek to open our hearts, that we might more and more be made into that likeness of Jesus, individually and as a people, that is your desire for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The writer to the Ecclesiastes, he tells us in his well-known words, in his own inimitable style, that there is nothing new under the sun. And the former principal of, of Spurgeon's, where I trained, Raymond Brown, who was my principal, he used to say something very similar to that during church history lessons, where as a, a well-known church historian in his own right, he used to bemoan the widespread ignorance regarding church history that there is in the churches um, and particularly maybe in the ministry and leadership of the church today. Because, you see, his view was that there are no new heresies around, that there are no new errors, no new mistakes being made. No, but that rather what we find is that from the very beginning of the church's history, in a depressing, ever-recurring cycle, we find the same old heresies, the same old errors being repeated again and again. And let me assure you, this does continue right up to the present day. With this certainly being true here, in that we can find elements, I believe, of the heresy that John was writing here to combat being repeated in our own time. And while we're going to explore this in a little bit more depth later, let me just now just outline a little bit of what this heresy, what the essence of it actually was. And that is the word people maybe even leaders of the church, people who called themselves Christians, who were saying, listen, doctrine, teaching, understanding of the faith, about the faith, these things don't really matter. 
No, what matters, really matters, is experience. What you think isn't really important. What's important is what you feel. In fact, in as far as doctrine sometimes seems to be an obstacle to feeling, an obstacle to experience, then doctrine is actually something to be avoided rather than actively sought. Well, do we, do we find glimpses of, of that kind of attitude anywhere in the church of today? Do we? Well, I believe we do. Just one example, maybe not in mainstream Pentecostalism, but in some of its more extreme offshoots. Say it in the example of a man quoted by John Stott many years ago, a man who said, when I go to church, I feel I want to unscrew my head and put it under the seat. I would like to do that for him. But anyway, but you can see the, the kind of thinking, and if you can call it that, 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 that's seen there. It's the idea that in some way that thinking, that doctrine, that the mind stifles the joy of worship and, and the work of the Spirit within us. And so then, for worship to truly be worship, then the less mind there is, the more, the more pure, simple experience there is, the better. But is this biblical? No, I don't believe it is, but, but there is a biblical balance here, which, by the way, I'm by no means claiming that we have got perfectly right. But we've got a balance stated in the Bible. With this being shared by Jesus in John 4, 23, in his famous conversation with the Samaritan woman, where he says, true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And John Piper comments here on this. Worshipping in spirit is the opposite of worshipping in merely external ways. It is the opposite of empty formalism and traditionalism. Worship in truth is the opposite of worship based on an inadequate view of God. Worship must have heart and head. Worship must engage emotions and thought. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full or half full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who despise the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. You know, I believe we find elements of the kind of this era that we're talking about. Also, I think we find it in the ecumenical movement, where again there are elements within this who have problems with doctrine, not because they believe it stifles joy. No, their problem with doctrine is that they feel it gets in the way of the legitimate aim of church unity. They feel that doctrine causes division. So the, the whole approach, and it has been for a, a number of years now, in the ecumenical movement, having founded on doctrine so often in the past, 
is to try and find some kind of unity in Christ that bypasses, that ignores this troublesome question of doctrine. Well, I remember when the the present ecumenical apparatus that we're still working within today was debated in the Scottish Baptist Assembly in 1988. I was there, and one of the speakers in favour, he said that the modern ecumenical basis was the sense of being on a journey together. And so relational, rather than propositional language, was appropriate. But you know, it sounds great that, but you see what it's, what it's actually saying. Basically it's saying that we had problems with doctrine in the past. So okay, let's move on. Let's instead concentrate on relationships. Let's feel together. Let's experience together. And let's, for just now, put propositions, put doctrine, put truth to the one side. Well, I I want to say I don't like being negative and anti. But I do have to say that for me, that just will not do. Because, quite simply, I don't believe you can have meaningful Christian fellowship, real spiritual relationship. You can't have true Christian unity with those with whom you are not in agreement with in at least the fundamental doctrines of the faith. For you see, if someone, some group, has not got a basic understanding of the person of Christ, of the work of Christ, of the nature of Christ, then that person, that group, is not a Christian, is not a church. And attempting to have meaningful Christian relationships before sorting that out is, for me, just supporting a delusion. It's just living out a lie. Another group, though, who have problems with doctrine and teaching are those who feel that it prevents effective evangelism. It gets in the way. And so, rather than biblical preaching and teaching, what they would rather use in evangelism are are thrilling stories, thrilling testimonies. Make more of an appeal to the heart, they say. Just thrill and excite people. And then we'll see more people coming to Jesus. Well, I want to say we might see more people responding to appeals. We might see more people coming out to the front I doubt whether we'll really see people coming through to a true personal faith in Jesus Christ. Rather, as John White, who wrote many influential books in the 80s and 90s, and who practiced as a psychiatrist as well as being an evangelist and church planter with a great international reputation, as he once wrote, change is brought about in human beings in a distinct order. The sequence of understanding, conscience, emotions, and then action. Try to bypass any of these, though. Try to say, get direct to emotion and then action. And it goes on. And any change produced will be superficial and short-lived. Well, could that maybe explain... Why in the church for many years we've had such a high fallout rate among our so-called new converts? Could it be? Because many of these people have never really truly been converted. They've maybe been momentarily moved in the heart, in the emotions, but never truly converted 
transformed, turned around in heart, mind and spirit. Now, again, I'd say don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there's no place for testimonies or stories of, or whatever in evangelism. Now, what I'm pleading for here, as I've been trying to do throughout, is for a balance, a true biblical balance. Within this instance, testimony, etc., not to be seen as equal to doctrine or teaching. Certainly not to be put in the place of doctrine or teaching, but rather being used properly. That is, to underline, to make clear, maybe to embellish the biblical teaching that's given. Now, I know I've spent a fair bit of time here pointing out what I believe are ominous signs in the church of today, of at least the beginnings of the same kind of problems that John faced in his day, as doctrine was pushed to the one side for the sake of experience. But I do this because, as I hope you're going to see now, as I seek this morning just to briefly introduce this first letter of John, because this is a road down which the church travels to disaster. When we get this wrong, things go disastrously wrong. But let's look first of all then at the reason for First John. And the, the reason, as we've suggested, is that this letter was, was written essentially in response to a false teaching that sought experience apart from doctrine that valued experience above doctrine. To define this just a little bit more precisely, though, this letter was written in response to an early church heresy called Gnosticism. Now, now what this was about was a a group of false teachers in the church who, for reasons we'll, we'll go into later, earned for themselves the name Gnostics, and that's all based on the the Greek word gnosis, for for knowledge or, or secret. But their basic problem, which formed the the principle which lay at the heart of their teaching, their problem was all to do with the incarnation, all to do with the human nature of Jesus. Because, you see, they, they couldn't accept that Jesus, that God, could become a man truly in the way the Bible teaches. Because they felt that, that matter, that is that flesh, is essentially evil. And that spirit is essentially good. With the two then, for them, being incapable of combining together in the way the Bible says. So, biblical teaching was seen by them, quite simply, as a mistake. A mistake that was made by the early uneducated, unsophisticated biblical writers. Now, how they actually understood Jesus kind of differed slightly among the the various subgroups. But the mainstream of their teaching, of their thinking, was that Jesus was simply a man. A man whom God's Spirit had occupied for a time. In the same way, maybe, that in our popular culture, people would think of a ghost haunting a house. So there wasn't then anything divine about Jesus. Not all Jesus was, was an ordinary man who had a special, extraordinary experience of God. But, and it's here 
that their name comes in. They said, we have the gnosis. That is, we have the knowledge, we have the secret. That if you come to us, if you take part in our rituals, our ceremonies, if you live as we live, we have the knowledge, the secret, that will enable you to climb up the ladder to a similar experience of God. And as I've already said, I can see glimmers of this kind of teaching in all sorts of ways in the church today. I can, and certainly, this has been the teaching, basically, of many of the cults, cults which are in the main distortions of Christianity. For example, this is Mormonism. This is what the Jehovah Witness movement's all about. And also, this kind of teaching is at the heart of, of what we call the New Age movement. You know, it's funny, but above all, tragic, I think, that while many of the kind of followers of the, the New Age think they're on to something new. You know, they think they're paving the way for a new age that's going to come for, for mankind. You know, the facts are that the basic teachings of the New Age movement emerge from a falsehood that is almost as old as Christian faith itself. But, you know, what we, I think, so often fail to see are the potentially disastrous results of this for the church and for the Christian. When doctrine is pushed to the one side for the sake of experience. For you see, in John's time, what happened then was first that Christian morality was affected. The approach seems to have been then that, you know, that if the flesh is evil anyway, then let's sin. What does the flesh matter? What is what we do in the body? What does that matter? Let's just sin all the more. And Christian unity also was affected. For without an agreed, unchanging basis of faith, the church almost inevitably splits into different factions, with each one claiming superiority for their experience, their way into the secret, for their outlook. And certainly, this is what happened in John's day, that Christians who were influenced by these false, these Gnostic teachers, that they then developed a growing sense that they were part of the in crowd, that they were part of the spiritual elite, that they were above the level of the ordinary Christian. And marked at the same time by a marked lack of love towards other Christians who they saw as being lowered down the spiritual pecking order. However, the real tragedy of Gnosticism, I believe, was that it also affected Christian assurance. For you see, humble, simple Christians, Christians who had based their life and their faith on the straightforward doctrine and teaching of the Bible and who are now being told, but that's not enough. Even that's not right. What you need is a secret. What you need is another experience that only we can give. These Christians, you see, they were beginning to wonder. You know, maybe I've had it all wrong. Maybe the Bible's got it all wrong. Maybe I'm not saved after all. Maybe the Christianity that I've been faithful to for all these years isn't actually the way after all. That was, I believe, the, the torment of these Christians that moved John to write this letter. 
We'll look at that a little bit more, though, as we move on now from looking at the reason for First John to the reaction of John. And you see, what happened, his reaction was that by now an old man, and towards the end of his life, the last survival, we believe, of the apostles, John was stung by this heresy into writing certainly this letter and also, in all probability, his gospel. And it's a point, actually, I think worth noting, that in the sovereign providence of God, that if it hadn't been for this Gnostic heresy, we wouldn't have had these unique, priceless writings of John. But you see, it was this background situation, this desperate situation into which John almost feels driven to write and address. It's this that gives this letter its distinct flavour. So Howard Marshall, who was formerly the New Testament professor in Aberdeen, so he writes of 1 John, that almost uniquely in the New Testament, this writing is not so much a letter as a written sermon or address. And I believe it's this, plus the fact that John was, was writing into a situation where a group of these false teachers had actually infiltrated the church, made their way into churches that he loved. It's this that makes this letter really such a curious mixture. For on the one hand, we have here John writing as the gentle pastor at times. Seeking to encourage those faithful, simple, but beleaguered Christians who are just stumbling on their way. For example, chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. And then in 5.13, we find him particularly addressing the problem with, with the Christian assurance that some of them were, were experiencing, we believe, where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. On the other hand, though, in other places in this letter, in complete contrast, we find John also writing as the uncompromising defender of the faith. For example, 4.23, Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and note that, is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. And 4 verse 6, we are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. With all of this leading Roy Clements to say that doctrine mattered so much to John that this gentle pastor who above all championed love of the brethren, could when occasion demanded become a zealous inquisitor, campaigning for the excommunication of heretics. However, there's, there's one aspect of John's reaction that I want to particularly highlight. That is that John wrote here, as we've said, 
because he was an apostle of Christ. And in these opening verses, very much, very much emphasized the fact that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He felt constrained to write because he was the last remaining apostle. And here in these opening verses, he, he makes much of the special qualifications that he now possesses uniquely as a foundational apostle. That is, that he was a, an eyewitness of the life and ministry of Jesus. That he'd met with the risen Jesus. And that as a result of this, he'd been specially appointed by Christ, divinely commissioned by Jesus to share this revelation. John's sense of, of apostolic uniqueness, I think, comes across very, very strongly in these opening verses. If in no other way, by his constant use of the word, we, we have heard, we have seen, we have looked at, etc. So why then, why did John make so much of this? Because John believed, as Christianity has right down through the ages, that all the answer to the church's questions about faith and conduct, it all lies in the teaching of the apostles, in the teaching of those who were commissioned by Christ and given a unique authority by Christ. So that when men stood, as they were here, and they said that Jesus wasn't really God in human form, but rather some kind of spirit-possessed zombie, while well, the church is then able to stand in the front of that and say, not now in person, but through the authority of the teaching of the apostles, is able to stand and say, that is not so. Because we have the account of those who knew him, saw him, heard him, touched him. We have their account stamped with his divine authority. And this is important. For we've already looked at a number of ways in which elements of the kind of false teaching that John faced can impact the church. But there's another. There's another one. And that is you sometimes hear taught intermittently about a continuing apostolic authority and prophetic ministry. You sometimes hear that. And I want to say I think there might be a lesser apostolic ministry, something more akin to our ministry. There may well be justification for talking about a continuing prophetic ministry in terms, I believe, of the inspired application of the Word of God. But let me say this very clearly. That whenever someone claims an authority for their ministry or for their words that gives them an authority either on a par with or even exceeding at times that of Scripture, whenever in one way or another the written, revealed Word of God is pushed to the one side, then the danger of heresy is real and among us. And the church is in grave peril. Let me finish off what I'm going to say this morning just by looking finally at the response of John. And when I say the response of John, that is the actual direct teaching that he gave here just to contradict this Gnostic heresy. And just to keep things brief and simple, as I always like to do, let me focus 
on three key words, phrases in these opening verses. Three words. The word, life, and fellowship. First, the word. Now, there's some debate about just what John actually means here when he talks of the word. That is, does he mean the word as in the word of God, the scriptures that testify to Christ? Or is he using this this phrase, as he does elsewhere, as a title? Christ in his person being the embodiment of the word. That is God's last word, God's final word as to all that God is. Well, John, you know, as a writer, he frequently uses double meanings. So, so my conviction is that he, he meant both things here. And that what basically he was saying was that it's through the word of Scripture, particularly through the apostolic testimony, that we come to know the word who is Jesus, God's final word to mankind. And as we know him, that then in him and through him, we then know life. The life of God at work in our hearts, at work in our midst. And it's as we experience of that life, it's as we know fellowship together in that, in that life, the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's that fellowship that then binds us together as the true the authentic people of God. But, but do you see, I hope you do, that it all rests on the basis of the Word of God. It says we come to know the Word as He's revealed in the Word, that we come to know the One who is truth, and it's through that truth that we come into true fellowship with His people. So you see, it's true. You cannot have authentic experience without a proper truth basis. Authentic experience always emerges from, always rests on the basis of right doctrine, biblical teaching, and true understanding. And that's the balance, I believe, if we're going to be truly biblical Christians, that we have to seek to achieve. And it's not an easy balance to find. It's not an easy balance to hold on to. For depending on our personality, it's all too easy for us to want experience without doing the hard work of getting to grips with the Bible's teaching. And because of that, ending up with a superficial, easily knocked off balance faith. Or alternatively, it's too easy for some of us to love that the mental exercise of getting to grips with what the Bible says, but because of our personality, to shy away from the genuine emotion that should accompany that, that genuine experience. So ending up with a faith that's just plain dull and dead. But as we get this balance right, though, this will lead us into meaningful not mindless joy in our worship. This will enable us to be truly, rather than superficially, effective in our evangelism. And this will lead us into a unity that isn't based on wishful thinking, that isn't an illusion, but that rather is a living and spiritual reality. 
Let me finish just by sharing with you once more from Roy Clements, who says that evangelism is concerned with proclaiming doctrine, not merely with sharing experience. And he says, I remember once talking with some university students who were being assailed by followers of an Eastern guru who was offering enlightenment, much as the Gnostics did. I was appalled, he says, to see the way the Christians were reacting. The guru's devotees were saying, you should come to my spiritual master. He can give you a marvelous experience of peace and joy. And the Christians were replying, no, you should come to our spiritual master. He gives an even better experience of peace and joy. That was all it was. A competition between rival experiences. And he goes on. We are not reduced to that. Evangelism is not the mere sharing of personal experience. It is the proclamation of biblical doctrine and teaching. That is not to say that experience has no place. Telling people what God has done will add immeasurably to the power of what we say to them about Jesus. But we cannot substitute testimony for evangelism. The two are different. Again, it is all about balance. Balance between doctrine, teaching, understanding and experience. With doctrine, with Bible truth, always being given the priority. Always being the foundation on which all else is based. I would say... Let's strive for that balance in our lives and in our church. Let's pray together. Father, we just come again and thank you for your word and thank you for its relevance that these problems that were faced many generations ago by Christians are still problems that we can face today. But in your word, you give us the means of dealing with these issues, the means of standing true to you and growing in our faith not shrinking away not shriveling up because of challenge but growing in the face of it lord be with us help us to be firmly based on the truth of your word we pray in jesus name amen